morning again, everyone. Good morning. My thanks again to my father-in-law, Woody, for letting us put him to work usually when he comes down here, leading our singing for us. Uh, never a, really a vacation when he comes down to see us. But um, Before I get started, I, I have to admit, this week I had a, a bit of a struggle in that, I guess it was Thursday sometime, I realized that in my preparations for the lesson this week, I had quite a bit of information, a lot of thoughts put together um, for a pretty decently long lecture, um, and a somewhat boring one for that matter, Um, (laughs) but not really a sermon. And so I I fought this one for a while and thought, how, how do I find what really needs to be said here. And so I think it was on on Friday morning, I just went back and I said, you know what, let me just read this text again. Let me read this story again. And I read through it and I was like, wow, this is anything but boring. And so knowing that I could not in good conscience present what happens here as a lecture that you may just be able to take or leave and maybe not off during, realize I don't need to give a lecture. I need to tell a story. So that's what I'm going to do this morning. Elijah was a troublemaker. Or at least that's what Ahab thought of him. You see, Ahab was the king. So you would think that what he would say would, would go. And his assessment of Elijah would be the one that would stand. But Ahab didn't really have a lot of good going for him, other than the being king part. You see, Ahab came from a long line of evil, wicked kings of the northern kingdom of Israel after the kingdom split, after Solomon's reign. In fact, Ahab took all the sins of his forefathers, he committed those sins, and he said, oh, wait a minute, I'm just getting started. That was just a warm-up. He did all the wickedness of his forefathers, and then he said, you know what, let me find some more to do. So Ahab, son of Omri, he set up an altar to Baal in the temple of Baal at Samaria. He said, I'm going to lead the people to worship those gods. He set up an Asherah pole to worship that fertility goddess of Asherah. And he said, you know what, that's not enough. You know, I'm not just going to reject the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm not just going to lead the people to worship these other gods. You know what? I'm going to go marry a woman from another one of these Canaanite kingdoms who worships these gods too. One of those women who God said, don't intermarry with those people. They're going to lead you astray. He said, I'm going to take a wife from among them. I'm going to marry Jezebel. The same Jezebel who later on starts hunting down the prophets of the Lord. He says, Elijah is the troublemaker. But actually, Ahab had such wickedness in his reign as king that one day the declaration of the Lord comes through Elijah and Elijah says, you know what? You think so much of these fertility gods and goddesses. You think so much of these gods who supposedly bring your reign. Well, guess what? It's not going to rain anymore. My God, the true God, the living God says, it's not going to rain 
until I give the word. And the rain stops. Ahab's not too happy about this, (laughs) to say the least. So, about three years into this drought, when Elijah sort of shows up again, he shows up to Obadiah. Now, Obadiah had to have been in a really weird spot. Because see, Obadiah was a faithful man. He was one who feared God, one who worshipped the Lord. But he was also an administrator for Ahab, this wicked king. And so some, at some point in this, this famine, in this drought, about three years into it, Ahab says, okay, we've got to search every little stream and spring and valley, anywhere where there might be some grass still growing to feed our animals so we don't have to start culling the herd because we just can't feed them anymore just because this famine, this drought is so severe. And Ahab says, okay, you go one, look in one way, I'll go look in the other way, and we'll just round up whatever is left, whatever we can find. But as Obadiah is going along doing his duty as Ahab's administrator, he comes upon Elijah. And Elijah says, hey, I need you to go tell Ahab that I'm back. And Obadiah says, you tell him. You know, he doesn't really say you tell him. But he does say, okay, wait a minute. No, no, no. Don't do this to me, Elijah. I mean, don't you know, I'm, I'm, don't send me to my death here. Don't you know that he has been looking everywhere for you? Every other kingdom in this area, he's made them just swear an oath that they're not hiding you there. He's taking this very seriously. And, you know, you know, and, and I know the spirit of the Lord. We never know what's going to happen next. And so if I go to him and say, hey, Elijah's back, and then he comes and you're not there anymore, the Spirit of God has taken you off somewhere else to where you're needed, I'm a dead man. Don't you know? I'm one of the good guys. Don't do this to me, Elijah. Don't you know when Jezebel was rounding up the prophets and killing them, I found, I rounded up a hundred of them myself to hide them. I put them in a couple of caves, 50 each. I gave them food and water. I've been protecting the prophets of God. I've been faithful to the Lord. So he's a little nervous, understandably. But Elijah says, no, don't worry. As surely as the Lord lives, I'm going to present myself to Ahab today. And so Obadiah, confident in the word of the prophet, does tell Ahab that, hey, Elijah's back. And Elijah does present himself to Ahab And when he saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Is that you, you troublemaker? Really, Ahab? You, the one whose wickedness caused this whole problem to begin with. You who said, hey, let's worship these Canaanite gods because they're the ones who bring rain and fertility. You're going to call the prophet the troublemaker. Actually, Elijah was a truth teller. And he responds to Ahab and he says, I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring 
the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And that seems to have shut Ahab up. (laughs) Because he doesn't say, he doesn't argue with Elijah. Really, he's left speechless. He doesn't have a response. He doesn't try and make his case of why really it's Elijah's fault. He hears the prophet tell the truth, and all he can do is obey. And so Ahab does what the prophet says to do. Ahab sends out the word through all Israel to gather all these people at Mount Carmel. And they all need to be there because Elijah was a question asker. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? How long? If the Lord is God, we'll then follow him. But if Baal is God, we'll then follow him. But the people said nothing. They were left speechless with this question, because I can't help but think, maybe this was the very question that no one had been asking. Which God is the real God? You've got all these gods you think you can choose from. Which one is real? Because maybe you should ask yourself, which one is real, and follow that one? It's a question that really they always seem to forget to ask. It's a question that they always seem to get confused on. You know, I've mentioned this so many times before, but it still just blows my mind at the, at the end of, of, of Joshua in chapter 24, at the end of Joshua's life, after all these incredible things have happened, the exodus has occurred, the wandering in the wilderness, the provision of God through all that, the, the entry into the promised land, God has revealed himself over and over and over and over again with power and decisiveness. And this is what Joshua says to the people before he departs this life. It says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But, if serving the Lord seems undesirable for you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord." And of course, all the people say, no, 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 no. we've seen, we understand, we will serve God. And he says, really? Because if you don't, you know what's going to happen. And they said, no, no, we're with God. We're with the Lord. We know they didn't do such a great job of that. Because Joshua knew, and God surely knows, that there's always going to be that question and that choice. That question we have to ask, okay, Who's really God? What God, little g, is God, capital G? There's always that question to answer. And it's so easy for us to get that question wrong, or get the answer to that question wrong, especially when we're not really asking it. We can tell ourselves that we're right. I mean, it happens over and over again just in in Scripture alone. You know, Moses is up in the mountain receiving the word of the Lord, receiving the Ten Commandments, and Aaron's down at the bottom of Sinai, you know, 
given into pressure, making, gathering up the gold to make an idol, to make a golden calf and say, here, people, here's the God who brought you out of Egypt. And then not too many generations before the story that we're looking at today, as the kingdom splits, and in, in 1 Kings 12, after seeking advice, is in, starting in verse 28, after seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel, the other in Dan, and this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. Let's set up a couple more golden calves and say, here's your God, Israel. Just don't ask if that's the real God or not. As long as you don't ask that question, which God is really God, well then, this is much more convenient. The king and the Roman king said, you know, you don't need to go up to Jerusalem because you might, you know, stick around there and, and be with the other side. So, just worship these gods in convenience. Now, God was still there all along, but he was so easily ignored. And I don't think they just woke up one day and said, hey, let's worship a different God now. But I think they did forget to ask themselves each day, at each step along the way, every choice they had to make, who's really God? Who is the real God? Where should my worship really be? And so they drift, and they drift, and they drift. Until we find ourselves in the mess that Israel was in when Elijah comes along. And Elijah was a gambler. (laughs) But he had a card up his sleeve. In fact, he had all the cards up his sleeve. So he could pretty easily say, okay, there's some, you don't have an answer as for, uh, you know, which God is really God. You don't have an answer to this all-important question, so let's make a little wager, why don't we? Let's set up these sacrifices. Let's bring the prophets of, of Baal together, and then, well, just me. I'm the only prophet God seems to have left. And, and we'll each prepare our sacrifices, and the God who answers by fire, well, that's God. The one who answers by fire, that shows his power, real power. Well, that one's God. And it sounded good to the people. He says, okay, people, you can't make up your mind who God really is. Well, let's see what's real. Because see, Elijah knew what was real. This was the safest bet in mankind's history. He said, let's see what's real and we'll live according to that, why don't we? See, this wasn't an issue of ideologies or competing philosophies. This was an issue of reality. What was real? Almost makes you wonder how the people that allowed themselves to drift so far that they didn't know what was real anymore. They had taken so many little steps away from God along the way that they were just drifting, not even knowing where to anchor their reality. Doesn't sound familiar to us, does it? Good thing that doesn't happen in our world anymore. So they say this is a good plan, and Elijah says to the prophets, Okay, well, you first. Let's see what happens. Elijah said to the prophets of all, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. It's nice and efficient. There's a lot of them. They'll probably get done first, so... Call on the name of your God, but don't light the fire. 
So they took the bull given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or or busy or, or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and needs to be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. And no one paid attention. We look at this story, and I know every time I look at the story and I see the activity of these prophets of Baal, it seems almost laughable when we look at that. And I think we can really appreciate just the sarcasm in Elijah's voice. I think you've got to have some really good sarcasm to be a good prophet. You gotta, you know, I think it's one of the requirements somewhere in there. I don't think it's listed anywhere in Scripture, but I'm pretty sure you need to have that tool at your disposal. And we really love, you know, you can't help but grin when you hear that line. Oh, you need to shout louder. Maybe he just can't hear you. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he's traveling. He's asleep, perhaps. Just shout louder. Knowing all along, no one's going to answer. There's no one there. Their folly was so obvious to us, to Elijah. Look at them looking to this God for their provision. This God who was acceptable to their culture, that was part of the world that they lived in. A God that I'm sure was comfortable to them. In large part, probably gods that were comfortable to them because they were gods that they thought they could control. They were gods that they could manipulate through their ritual and their sacrifice by their own efforts. Of course, you see where their own efforts got them. I mean, they were literally beating themselves up to make something happen. And we look at them and we just smirk. And we say, wow, they're so foolish, aren't they? Looking to something that's not God for their provision, working so frantically, so frenetically, beating themselves up for something other than the true God. But don't we have that same tendency? Don't we all find ourselves going down that path, beating ourselves up with the customs of our own day according to the gods of our own choosing and often the gods of our own design? There's so many competing gods in our own world. You know, the God of of entertainment. You know, the closest thing that most of us have to an actual altar in our lives is that box that sits in the living room. We have this God of popularity, of of fame, of being liked. We take this God-given desire for acceptance and community, and it mutates into this lust for fame. Saw a reference to a a survey recently. Said that in, in 1997... Among 9 to 11-year-olds in our country, um, fame was the 15th ranked goal. Of 9 to 11-year-olds, of things, of goals they had in their life, number 15 on the list was to be famous. Well, in 10 years' time, by 2007, it had moved to number one. More than anything else, the biggest goal that 9 to 11-year-olds had for their life was to be famous. Don't tell me that's not a false god. We have these gods of success. We measure 
our lives by titles and accolades and bank statements. And sometimes we even do find some success, and we do in the short term feel good about the things that we accomplish by our own strength. And I think we're crippled and blinded sometimes by our own abilities, by our own appearance of success. And we trick ourselves into measuring success by what we've done instead of by what God is doing and being thrilled by the blessing of God using us, using our offering, our sacrifice to do His work. And I could go on and on. There's so many idols that we can lay our sacrifice down before. There are so many false gods that I'm sure to God look just as foolish as those prophets and their sacrifice of all would look to us. But we lay down our lives before those small gods that we think we can control. Because, honestly, giving ourselves over to the true God, well, that's just scary. He's too free, too wild, too powerful, too beyond my control. Anything could happen. I mean, even... Oh, but I got a little nervous that he was just going to whisk Elijah away before he got back. God could do anything. Now, what he does isn't based on what we do. So we have to give up that control. That's frightening. But we have to remember, like that line from the Chronicles of Narnia that I love so much, that while he's not safe, he is good. And as for those other things, those other gods that we think we can control, that we can manipulate to get what we think we need, what we think we want, we're really just fooling ourselves. We can slash ourselves with swords and spears. We can just frantically worship at this altar of our own making, but no answer will come. No one will be paying attention. I do wonder if God looks at us sometimes in our casual idolatry and he's shouting down to us, I don't think your God can hear you. I don't think your money can hear you. I don't think your fame can hear you. I don't think your entertainment and your pleasure, I don't think it can hear you because it's not answering and certainly not saving you. First and foremost, Elijah was a prophet. And so he says to the people, you know what? Let's make this abundantly clear. He says to all the people, come here to me. And they came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two says of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water, and pour it on the offering on the wood. And then he tells them to do it again. And then he tells them to do it again until the water runs down around the altar and fills up the trench. Let's make it clear. Let's not just see if God can send fire where your God can't. Let's stack the deck against him. Let's see if we can make it impossible and then watch God do it. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God and Israel, and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. The impossible happens before their very eyes. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And the tables are turned on those prophets. They're the ones being rounded up and put to the sword for their idolatry. And then Elijah says, Oh yeah, and Ahab, here comes the rain. The same God who's revealing himself in fire, revealing himself in power. Now that the people can declare with a loud voice, the Lord, he is God. Now that Lord, who is God, who controls everything, even the weather and your crops. Not those false gods you're worshiping. Now just to punctuate it a little bit, just to make sure there's no doubt left in your mind. Here comes the rain. The same question that Elijah asked comes to you and me. It comes to us every day. And we've got to ask ourselves, which God is going to answer? And not just answer, but answer with fire, all-consuming fire, unquestionable power. Because none of our idols can do that. No matter how comfortable they are, no matter how much sense they make to us at the time, none of them can answer like that. Every day there's a choice to be made. Who, to whom, will you offer your sacrifice? Because I will guarantee you, you will sacrifice on some altar. There is no neutral ground in this. If you want proof, just look back at yesterday and try and grab it. You can't. It's gone. Those 24 hours of your life, you laid them down somewhere. Where'd you put them? What altar did you lay your life down upon yesterday? Because that sacrifice is a sacrifice. It's gone and it's not coming back. And you have today to make that decision again. Where am I going to lay down my life today? And you look back on the sacrifices you've been making up to this point in your life and ask yourself, does your sacrifice leave you bruised and bloody without anything ever showing up, without an answer ever really coming? Or do you lay your life down before God in such a way that He gets to say, oh, just watch this. And He does something through you that's so amazing, so powerful, so uniquely God, that the people can't help but shout, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. It's a simple task that we have, really. Offer our very lives in sacrifice. Not that we strive with our own strength. Not that we do more and be more by our own power. 
but that we lay down our lives before God because only He can send the fire. Only He can answer with real power. And guess what? He's the only one who can answer. I don't know where you've been laying your life down up to this point. That's a question that I think that only we can answer ourselves and only our Heavenly Father knows. But if you've been laying it down on some other altar and you want to come back to the God who can answer, who can really answer by fire, with power, with truth, the God that is really God, and you want to turn to Him today, we'd love to help you do that. If there's any way that we can help you come to this God and you want to make any declaration that you want to lay your life down in sacrifice in honor of Him, we'd love to help you do that this morning. Please come while we stand and while we sing.